We'll pray in just a moment. Uh, whoever fired this projectile uh, can, re re can regain it after the service is over. <laughs> and I'll ask you not to fire any more during the service, please. <laughs> or at least during the preaching. But uh, somebody left their Nerf dart here. If it never gets any worse than Nerf, I'm not going to worry too about it too much. If any of you find a pair of glasses around the church somewhere, they belong, they belong to me. And so most of you are fairly clear, but uh, when you get right towards the back here, I've got this little middle distance issue and somewhere, and my glasses are in the middle distance area, so I can't see them. I want to echo my thanks to those who decorated uh, uh, as well. I went out on Thursday morning to play a little bit of hockey with some of my friends. And when I came back, it was all done. And uh, I didn't play hockey all that long. But it, uh, it was a, uh, a transformation when I returned. And I appreciate the fact that this is done and getting to make us. Where were they? soundboard okay I don't need them to preach but I need them to get home <laughs> let me welcome those of you as well this morning who are visiting with us I see folks from the St. John's area and a few other places and some of you have brought members of your family with you and so it's good to, it's good to greet you many of you might be belong to this church but I think you're visitors because I have not been here long enough to be able to distinguish everyone. But we're glad to have each and every one of you with us this morning. We're going to bow for a moment and remember the need, the need that's before us. Uh, and Stephanie, a word to you. Don't ever apologize for a little emotion in, the, in a service like that. Um, someone wrote a song that said, Tears are language God understands. And there are things that weigh so heavily on our heart. But I would never discourage a person from being emotional inside of a church or when bringing a need before, before God. And so as our hearts are touched, let's be free to express ourselves. Father, we thank you this morning for all of your wondrous gifts. This season brings so many blessings into such bold relief for us. It shows us how far you were willing to go in order to provide salvation for all humanity. And so our hearts are touched by what we've seen and heard all already this morning. We've sensed hope. And we know that hope has come to reside in our souls. And I pray that as we look into your word in just a few moments this morning, that we will, our hope will be renewed again. I pray for those who are facing uh, examinations this week and uh, in the weeks ahead, need your special touch. We are thankful for education and for learning in our land. We are thankful for those who have come to us because education has drawn them into our city, into our church, and I pray that we'll be faithful in ministering to them and providing as well a place for them to minister. And so, Lord, be with those who, who study and now have to give an account of the kind of studying that they've done. I pray that you'll bless them and you'll bring to their remembrance the things that they have learned. 
And uh, I pray the outcome for them will be good. I pray that you would bless them as so many students travel during this Christmas season. I pray that you will keep them safe and bring them back safely to this city once again. Now, the word has already been prayed for, but we pray for its reception by the hearts of those who are here, here today and those who will also find their way to the word of God in different ways this season. We pray that you'll bless them and make them aware of who you are and the great things that you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning on a countdown to a better Christmas. <clears throat> I love preaching Christmas from the Old Testament. There's so much in the Old Testament that points us towards, towards the new. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the 49th chapter of the book of Isaiah. And you have gathered already that I love the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> and all that it contains. So we're going to read the first seven verses, this portion of scripture. I mentioned in the prayer time that others will see the word of God in a different way this Christmas season. I say that because uh, I don't know what the final count was at the end of the week, but David was advising me that we've taken the messages from Sundays and put them up on, on a blog that's connected to the church website. And uh, up till late in the week, David, I think you told me there were 91 views. And so that's a, Dave tells me that's a good, a good number. I just didn't know for sure. And uh, that's Dave LaRose. And uh, I appreciate that it gets, it gets disseminated beyond, beyond our own borders as well. Isaiah 49, listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is, what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says... It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. And this is the verse that excites me a great deal. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, 
the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Amen. Another piece of Isaiah that is filled with messianic messages draws us to who God was really talking about to Isaiah the prophet. If you're a fan of all in the family, that's changing gears, isn't it? You remember the episode that contained Archie Bunker's famous Christmas dinner grace. He began like this. Once again, Lord, Christmas has us by the throats. What a view of the season when we begin to celebrate our Savior's birth. But as we heard already this morning, we're all aware that not all people look at the season just ahead as a time filled with tidings of comfort and joy. There will be those that 2016 held sorrow and pain and incredible loss. There are people within our congregation today who have seen troubling times and Christmas for some might be another stressful season. It's true that a joyful heart cannot be forced. For some, Christmas won't be naturally happy. It will need an injection of happiness and joy. It will not come from inside, but it can be brought to place inside. This may be especially true for husbands who, or wives who spend their holly jolly nights trudging through a shopping mall to get Aunt Myrtle a new pair of socks. Jules Pfeiffer produced a cartoon a few years ago depicting a poor middle-aged man the panels move from Thanksgiving depression, followed by Christmas despair, topped off by New Year's anxiety attacks, none of which cuts into a ceaseless round of party-going, gift-giving, and, se and seasonal cheer. And in the last panel of the cartoon that I remember so well, the poor man is under a snowstorm of ashes that are falling all around him and piling up at his feet, and he says, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la. We're surrounded by folks today who will end up when the season is over doing exactly the same. Standing in ashes, singing fa-la-la-la-la without much conviction. Isaiah 49 speaks to that kind of condition. It speaks to people who knew all about turbulence and despair. It speaks to people who were broken and dispossessed. And the target audience for this part of, of this prophecy was a nation who would not be home for the holidays. In fact, they were captives in ba Babylon, and that's why it's directed the way that it's written. The birth of Christ is still 700 years in the future, but Isaiah gets privileged to see the, pan the panorama of the day when Jesus would break into the dreary atmosphere of these people's lives. And even beyond the text that I read to you this morning, Isaiah has an even more startling message to people who were dispossessed of their lands and living under the oppressive regime that we look back upon historically as Babylon. And Isaiah 4:49 and 13 asks them to do something that seems almost impossible at the beginning. It says, shout for joy, O heavens, 
Rejoice, O earth, burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. And this is still the message that God once heard as we count down the days to the celebration of the Lord's birth. There was enough content in the prayer time this morning to convince us of the need that exists even amongst this small group of people and those we mentioned by extension. There's enough, there's enough I saw in the candle lighting this morning, in the Advent candle, to convince us that prayer during Christmas for our family is important, our church family. Isaiah heard God's word for all the created order to praise him because of his mercy and compassion. And can we really do that? Can you do that even though you may look at yourself and consider yourself a casualty? According to the list of what creates a casualty in 2016. And Isaiah can only say what he does. And you only speak into the despair of life. You can only offer this kind of perspective because Isaiah has been blessed with the knowledge that Messiah is coming. He knows there's something better on the horizon. He's already seen a vision of him. And a few weeks ago, I preached on chapter 6. He's already seen him high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. It's because he's had a glimpse of who is coming that he's able to look at the darkness of his immediate time and see hope in the midst of it. He's seen heavenly seraphim praying, uh, praising him with the words, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the earth is full of his glory. Can you look at life honestly today and say the earth is full of his glory? See, that's a challenge for faith. Just physical eyesight will never allow for this. The eye of faith has to be engaged to see any of these things. But see, Isaiah has already prophesied in chapter 9, verse 6. And this is, this is way before this portion that I read this morning. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Then we sang it. Thank you, worship team, so much. The government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then the promise gets broader of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's a bold promise for a desperate time. And in desperate times, we need to be bold about the depth of our faith. We have to be able to see what is unseen. The evidence has to be there in faith. You see, Isaiah's entire prophetic ministry of writing and preaching was focused on one thing. Isaiah is all about the salvation of his people. When Peter explained the purpose of the prophetic writings in speaking to first century Christians, Peter said this in, in 1 Peter 1 and 10, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired about this salvation. They inquired what person or time was indicated by the spirit of Christ within them when predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. What we are experiencing today, prophets long to look into. 
We are blessed beyond all people in the fact that we are able to look from this side of Calvary back on what has happened. Those of the past in Isaiah's time were only able to look ahead and could only see just glimpses of what he would be like. We've got it both ways. And as we count down to Christmas, we need to pause and see God's purposes and then ponder the absolutely mind-boggling miracle for all of the prophecies that were written to take place. We've been given a Savior. And it can't be comprehended by just reason. It has to be apprehended as well by faith. Two references in our text this morning I want to repeat to you. In verse 9, before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he made mention of my name. And then in verse 5, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. Now to get interpretive about this, this supernatural work of God was to take human form in the womb of a virgin named Mary, which Isaiah also prophesied. The prophecy comes about so accurately as well. Before Jesus was born in the manger, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her she would have a baby and that his name was to be Jesus. The angel likewise came to Joseph and cautioned him about his intentions because his intentions was to put her away privately. And that's a phrase that is pregnant with meaning. Pregnant being the operative word there. The angel told Joseph she was with child and that she would bear a son. And you can only imagine the kind of shock that must have sent through his, through his central nervous system. Especially the piety of the Jewish mind of that time. The angel specifically told the carpenter, that they were to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And Jesus is the Greek form of the name we know in the Old Testament as Joshua, but in the, Ar in the Ar Ar Aramaic, it comes out as Yeshua, and its precise meaning is deliverer, deliverer or savior. And so when he says, call his name Jesus, if you had listened to it in Hebrew, call him Joshua or Yeshua. A few years ago, an advertisement appeared in many newspapers sponsored by the group that's known as Jews for Jesus. And the ad was all about the name Yeshua. As many people from the Jewish tradition called Jesus. It talked about the work he would accomplish. And the ad talked about why it was so important to understand his name. And here's what they wrote in the ad. I clipped it so many years ago now, and it's, it's poignant. Now, many would have liked it better if the angel had said, and you are to give him the name Santa Claus, because he will bring you presents. Many people would rather not hear about sin, but it's a fact. It's a condition. It's a problem that needs a dramatic solution. The condition of humanity, call it sin if you have the courage, has been lamented for centuries. Oh yes, the ad said there has been progress. 
But it is the wrong kind of progress because now a few desperate men pushing a few buttons can annihilate all life on this problem-ridden planet. Is that a solution? I thought after I, after I dug this out of my files, wasn't this the same reflection that I heard just recently during the election campaign in the United States? I heard those same words come back to me again. We probably have equal concerns with Mr. Putin in Russia and Kim Jong-un in North Korea. God promised a Messiah for all of the things that we have talked about in our prayer language today, for all of the issues and the problems, for all the families, for all the brokenness, for all of the things that we carry as our secret fears, God promised a deliverer, a problem solver. And if there's anything more difficult to accept, the ad said, than the fact of sin, yours and ours, it's the idea that God solves our problem. And to me, that's what Christmas does. But he can. He wants to make, he wants us, he can make us want peace, give us hearts to care about one another, relieve guilt, mend broken homes, give meaning to our lives, and diminish the din of the 20th century with the music of his love. Now, the the ad went on to say this. God's dramatic solution, Jews for Jesus says, is Yeshua. The news is going to make some people unhappy. Maybe you don't like Jews. Maybe you ever, maybe Archie Bunker was, was right on cue there, wasn't he? Maybe you have a grudge against Christians. Maybe you don't like your sins, yourself, or the God who made you. Sorry about that, the ad said, but it really doesn't change the truth. Before you dismiss what should be good news, remember that the truth might be so simple that it was overlooked by the people who should have known. The need was and is due to the human, human condition, just in case you're choking over that three-letter word, sin. God's Salvation is a sacrifice, a sin-bearer, a mediator, a mentor, a messiah. Yeshua is all that and much more. And to me, that goes to the heart of what we're celebrating at Christmas, the answer to the deepest need that we, that we have. He was the deepest need for the people of Isaiah's time. He's the deepest need of people today, except now he is not a prophetic figure that we look, that we look ahead towards. He is someone that we can look back on, and I trust you can look inwardly and find him there. And if he's not there, then you're still stuck with the problem that you came with. Jesus was called by that name because it's the only fitting name that describes the reason why God becomes robed in flesh. Verse 2 of the text as secretive language, the one provided by God to bring us salvation is not revealed immediately, and this is what Isaiah saw, but he's prepared. The verses say, and listen to the secretive language, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me 
in his quiver. It is something that is put, put away. It's something that is partially hidden. And Jesus lived in virtual seclusion and relative obscurity until he's 30 years, years of age. From his ministry, we know that during that time, he mastered the scriptures and learned to trade. He emerged very briefly, and we caught a glimpse of him at 12 years of age in the temple. And then he burst onto the scene at age 30, perhaps dealing with the same people that he had amazed when he was 12, not even a teenager. And as you count down the days to the gifts and the presents, we should thank God for his providential protection upon the Savior who was the target of evil intentions and assassination plots while he was still just an infant. There's nothing more clear than the purpose of Jesus. Isaiah describes him. And then when I go to the book that talks about him or I go to the Gospels that describe him in person, he's true to his name. He called Matthew from a toll booth. He pursued Zacchaeus up a tree in Jericho. He walked to a forbidden well in the town of Sychar in Samaria. He reached out to diseased lepers Roman centurions, pious Pharisees. He depicted humanity in king's palaces and in filthy pig, pig pens, if you remember the story. He blessed little children and pronounced woes on cities that were unrepentant. Salvation flowed out of his life wherever he went, and he lived what Luke 19 and 10 states, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is the most consistent message of Scripture, and in one small encapsulated sentence, it sums up what Jesus is, re is really about. And we can't take him out of that context. He went beyond his own people. We see him visiting with Samaritans and Greeks and Syrophoenicians. He met possessed people and oppressed people. And Isaiah's picture in 49, chapter 4, 49 is just so accurate. And here's what here's what's said. I love the way it's phrased. When it looks at the need of the moment, Israel looked for a redeemer, and Isaiah says this. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you. He goes beyond just his own racial group, the Jews, and God shows the expanse of his ministry. He says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so I check something. 5,000 miles or 8,000 kilometers from Jerusalem to Cornerbrook. From the man in the mountain to the baby in the manger, if you will. And for all intents and purposes, that's to the ends of the earth. And if you're counting down to a miserable Christmas, and I hope you're not, and I hope I can change your mind if you are, then let Christ's love reach out to you today and listen, my friend, God brings his people back home after the period of captivity. He has, he has a ways to take the children of Abraham yet, if you understand the scriptures at all.
He has plans for the people that are called his chosen people, but he has some amazing plans for you and me too. Don't write yourself out of those plans. And by an act of submission, you can actually write yourself into the script. So many have. Isaiah foresaw a day that is amazingly broad in its scope. Verse 7, he says, This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. You see, the story of Jesus is one of rejection by his own people. It's a story as well of rejection by people day after day. We'll have communion this morning. Isaiah saw, saw him. When Isaiah sees him in, in chapter 53, he sees him broken, bruised, afflicted, and chastised with all of the iniquity of the world placed upon him. But 10 chapters later in, in, in chapter six, 63, he sees him absolutely victorious, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Paul sees him humiliated, and he sees him exalted. If there's a portion of scripture that has to be one of the most exciting ones in all of the scriptures, and one of the most demanding ones, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, many of you will know it by heart. Your attitude, this is Paul speaking, I'm only repeating what he says because he's repeating it to me too. Your attitude, my attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, that's Christmas, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. An eternal being, robed in flesh, becoming obedient to the curse of humanity, the curse of death, the punishment for sin, even death on a cross, the death of a criminal. And then the verse changes. And the cadence should change in your heart as well. Therefore, because of what he has done, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Princes shall see you and bow down. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, Paul says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've just been through in one verse the depths of shame and despair and the heights of glory of being abhorred, as Isaiah says, on one hand and being exalted to the highest on the other.
I'm glad to share in his shame if I can also share in his glory. And my faith tells me that's where I'm bound. If we are willing to suffer for him here, we shall be exalted to his right hand there as the bride of Christ. As you count down to, to Christmas, the merchants envy your cash. That's okay. Santa dogs your footsteps. But when it's all over, what will you have besides a swollen visa statement? When Christmas is over, will you have Jesus as your Savior? That's the big, that's the big question. And if you say no to it, if you look at me this morning and say, no, I won't have Jesus as my Savior now or when Christmas is over, then Christmas will be absolutely empty. It may have a few things in it, but it will lack the essential person. It may have people in it, but the essential relationship will be missing. came across this story by Arnold Prater in a book called Release from phoniness. I want to read it to you at the end of this message today. And I heard the musicians playing a song called Emmanuel. Can we do that in the right next after this story? Here's the way the story goes. It was a man I knew who stood behind the second chair in a barber shop where I was a customer. The owner of the shop was a friend of mine. But this fellow in the second chair, a man who was about 65 years of age, was about the vilest, most vulgar, profane, wicked-talking man I had ever known. He must have had some kind of fixation about preachers, for it seemed to me that every time I entered the shop, he doubled his output. One day, when I went in, he was gone. I asked my friend where he was, and my friend said, oh, he's been desperately ill. And for a while, they despaired of his life. Perhaps six weeks after that, as I was entering the post office one day, I heard a voice call my name. I turned and saw the profane man. He was seated in a car so he could watch the people passing by. He was a mere shadow of a man, and his face was the color of death itself. He crooked a bony finger at me, and I walked over to where he, where he was. He said in a voice so weak that I had to lean forward to catch the words, Preacher, I want to tell you something. Boy, I have heard those words in my own lifetime, and sometimes they have scared the daylights out of me. When someone looks at me and says, I want to tell you something, I have been sometimes unprepared for what I have, what I have heard next. But this man said this, I was in a coma down there in the hospital. I couldn't move or see. They didn't know it, but I could still hear. And I heard the doctor tell my wife, I don't think he can last another hour. Then his voice trembled, so it was a moment before he could continue. Preacher, he said, I had never prayed in my entire lifetime, but I prayed then. I said, oh God, if there is a God, I need you now. And when I said that, I don't know how to put it into words, but all I can say 
is I was given an assurance that he was there. And the tears welled up in his reddened eyes, and he said, this is what caught me on this story. Oh, preacher, just imagine. I've kicked him in the face every day of my life for 65 years. And the first time I called his name, he came. That touched my soul like few things have in a long time. And I think it paints the ideal portrait of who Jesus Christ is. The first time you call his name. And the truth is, every time you call his name. See, today is the day of salvation. And as you count down to a better Christmas, I want to tell you this morning, if you call his name, he'll come. Call his name because he's listening. Be assured. Be absolutely assured that he already knows your name. He knows where you are. And the misery of Christmas doesn't have to happen. I know it may not always be tidings of comfort and joy, but I'll tell you today as well that as you call upon his name, he'll also do for you what he did to this man. Just by his presence inside, you will know he's there. And because you know he's there, your Christmas will be blessed. Father, thank you. As we bow in your presence, we thank you that you're here this morning. You've already touched hearts today. You've warmed our souls. You've convinced us afresh of your love for us. What Isaiah could only look into longingly we experience today. You're just not high and lifted up in a physical temple. But the New Testament tells us that Christ in you is the hope of glory, so you're inside of us today. You reside, the new church is the believer, and you are in our hearts today. You reside. And I pray that we will feel your spirit this Christmas with plenty, plenteous grace and mercy. We will know you're inside by the power of your presence. And we ask you to preside over our Christmas season and pray that you'd be glorified in us and through us. We thank you for all of your blessings. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.